Good, mo good morning. Good morning. How is everyone? Can you hear me, Ben? You can hear me. Excellent. We're professionals. How is everyone? This, I'm going to keep asking until we, we get somebody having a good day. He's laughing. How is everyone? See? There we go. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk for a minute while we make sure that everyone has their mics on. And then, uh, Luke, you let me know when you're ready to go, and, and we're ready to go. You're already ready to go? See, he's professional. I am definitely not. So for those of you that do not know me, and that should be pretty much every single one of you, except for maybe four or five people. So my name is Seth. I host the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Um, you'll also notice some things about me that you don't know. My children pick out my socks, and so, yes, these do have mustaches with... with uh, glasses of some sort on them and so that's one of my favorite things to do each morning they have not realized yet that that's just a way to get them to get dressed earlier the one that first gets their shoes on for school they get to pick out dad's socks so um if you need if you don't want to pay attention to me or to paul or to mike just or mark uh, to mark just look at my socks just focus in on that make a story about them it's going to be excellent so i host a show called can i say this at church and for some reason uh, they trusted me with a microphone in public, with professional public speakers for the most part, and so that's not, um, that's not intimidating at all. Uh, so I did want to say I am well outside of my comfort zone here, but I think that that fits with the um, Imagine theme overall. I think that fits with the church overall. Got to get out of a comfort zone. And so normally I have two miniature dachshunds that record each episode with me of this show, uh, standing in a soundproofed room of a basement that is mostly soundproof because of a tremendous amount of stuffed animals that uh, were got were loved for a day and now sit in the corner. So that is a little bit about me. And so I don't know if you've listened to the show or not, but um, if you have, thank you. If you haven't, thanks for having me again. So I think we should start out with, because um, I know we are live streaming a lot of things, or I hope that we are, but more importantly for me, I always find it's good to have a context on who and what people are because we all come from a designated bias. And so as we get going, I'm gonna ask a nice open-ended existential question. Um, I'm, gonna give, um, I'm gonna give Paul the ability to answer first. So Paul, when you try to wrap words around like, what is a Paul Baxley? What is that? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so I would describe myself still first and foremost as a pastor. I mean, that was my calling that I, not unlike Beth, uh, discovered in my church growing up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, I was not eager to embrace that at first. Um, even in the 1980s, church wasn't the easiest place in the world to be. And the church I grew up in experienced its own set of conflict. But nonetheless, I started to think this crazy thing that maybe I was called to be a minister. And when I look back on high school and college, um, I see that kind of run through my life. Um, I am also a husband and a father of four. Had a really cool experience preaching here at First Baptist Church in Waynesboro on Sunday because I looked to my left, the congregation's right, and there was a young couple in the congregation that had really young twins and a three-year-old. And like a decade ago, that was us. Um, and so it was really neat to look back and think about the ways that uh, God's grace has brought us through. Uh, we have four children. Our oldest is now a junior at the University of Georgia. 
and has been twice a Passport Bible study leader where she has interacted with a number of churches from Virginia. Um, our next daughter is a freshman in high school, and then our twins are in the sixth grade. So we're starting middle school and high school this year in our house. So husband, father, pastor, that's at least some answer to your question. I was once a violinist, but we don't have time for that. Really? Yeah. So next year, we'll have you back if we host it wherever it's hosted, yes. and you're playing the violin. No, I'm not. 100%. Why not? I, I, don't, I don't know why not. The yeah. violinist in the room would sue me for <laughs> uh, Mark yourself. What, what, what is a Mark? All right. So I think I had the perfect name because I always am racing for the Mark. I always have a goal that I'm going towards, and I'm going to run through a brick wall to get to that goal. So when I was in high, uh, middle school, I started in the, in the band and I was fourth chair trombone, and I wanted to be first chair. And I went home, and I practiced, and I practiced, and I practiced, and I went to the, uh, the place where they would re-rank the chairs, and I still was horrible. Uh, so I moved to tuba, and I was the only tuba player, so I got first chair. <laughs> <laughs> the day after I got my driver's license, I was, uh, again, at my dad's church, and we were going to go to Subway together. I was going to beat the youth group there. I was going to run through a brick wall to get, to, luckily I didn't drive through one, but I did get a ticket for going 95 and a 55. Mm. Yeah, that didn't go well for me. Mm. But the next day, my mom said, you have to get a job at Chick-fil-A. So I did. I started Chick-fil-A. First day, I said, I am going to be a manager here. I, that, that's like my life in uh, a nutshell. I'm always going for the next mark. Uh, when I worked at Central Baptist with David and Nelson, they used to call me Jerome Bettis. Uh, if you know Jerome Bettis, he was the bus, uh, straight downhill runner for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And that's me. I'm straight downhill all the time going for the mark. Mm. Yeah, all, so all in, all the time. All in, all the time. Is that I need that T-shirt. Is that dangerous from time to time? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've had some coaching uh, during my sabbatical, and we've talked a lot about that. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> coaching, coaching from the people that love you. 100%. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So if we had time at the end, I would actually like to open it up, unless we can't be nice, um, to questions that each of you would possibly have for a few. But we will have to see how much time we have at the end. So um, again, not sure why I'm trusted with the microphone, but um, thank you, Ben, again, for, for asking me to, and uh, Terry for saying yes, and Paul and Mark as well for, um, for, for playing along. So I would like to ask some questions so aptly named uh, for Can I Say This at Church. So one of the reasons that the whole show started was... I journaled over a decade of just issues that I had with the church because I felt like I had been lied to uh, as a human growing up in a very specific type of um, independent regular Baptist church, which is, which is, I don't know if you know what that is, but you should. And then don't, don't Google it, just take my word for it. Um, so thinking on imagine and reimagining, so if you could dial it back a few years, and, and we can do this either at the global level or at the local level, why does that matter? Like, where were we as a CBF and as a body of believers overall? And so why even the need to, to imagine it or to reimagine it? Because I feel like that's something we're going to have to constantly do, um, which is exhausting as, as, the, as the volunteer in the room. Uh, but I think it's important because I have young children that I would like to have a community of faith that they can call home. And so I think what matters for church and what church is should be reimagined. But can you set the context for why? Because I am ignorant of the why. So I think there are at least two answers to the question why reimagine or why imagine. 
there's an obvious answer, which is that everything around us seems to be changing really, really, really fast. Um, you know, I had been in my current role as CBF's executive coordinator for exactly a year when the pandemic started. You know, happy first anniversary. And about three months into the pandemic, our moderator, uh, who uh, herself was pastoring a, a congregation in our fellowship, we were in a conversation, and Carol said to me very honestly, Paul, you do realize that the world you pastored in no longer exists, right? The coronavirus pandemic, uh, the national, international struggle about racial injustice, the partisanship that has torn congregations and communities apart, so many struggles. The way I come to see it, a lot of the coronavirus pandemic just amplified, intensified, and accelerated changes that were already underway anyway, and they just got accelerated. So the, the obvious answer to why reimagine is that the world around us is changing dramatically. But there's another answer. We serve an adventurous God who is relentlessly resurrecting and reimagining. And it's not like God is in the business of stagnancy. Ask Abraham. You know, time to coast, 75 years old. <laughs> River Road Church has celebrated its 75th birthday. I told him a couple weeks ago, look out, ask Abraham. <laughs> like, 75 years. That's not safe space. That's like, you're at risk. Because God might ask you to do an entirely new thing that disrupts and disorients and leaves behind. Um, so if you read the story of the book of Acts, if you read the scriptures, we are constantly reminded that we serve a God who is always making everything new. And like that sounds really good till you get inside that vortex. And one of the things I've come to believe is that the primary driver of change and the primary catalyst for reimagining right now is not the ordinary or even extraordinary change going on around us, but God is in the business of doing a new thing right now. And that is challenging us and stirring us and provoking us. But there's a gospel buried in there, which is that if, if God is at work, <laughs> then we have reason to be hopeful even in the chaos. So, yeah. Yeah. Anything that you would add to the local level? Yeah, so with CBF Virginia, it's always uh, kind of the, the uh, maturation of the question, why? Why are we doing what we're doing? When I started here, um, when I moved to Virginia in 2007, I got a couple of youth ministers together, and I said, we need to, we need to start doing something together as CBF, as CBF Virginia. There had not been any kind of youth event. How can we get together, bring our youth together, and show that there's a bigger CBF body? The why for doing that at that stage was... We just need to, we need an event where we can take people and not have to come back and reteach everything. That's a pretty low bar, but it was an important bar, right? And so we did that for a couple of years, but then we had to reimagine, okay, why are we doing this now? Okay, we've created that space. Well, the students we were bringing are starting to ask really hard questions and looking for a space where they can explore their call. And so we went from just doing missions to doing more spiritual formation we started a call weekend for students to come and to explore what God might be calling them to do, whether that's ministry, whether that's being a teacher. Um, but our why is starting to change again. I mean, all that's great. Now our why is, what is the next step for the church? Because these students that we brought along for a decade 
They're getting to be young adults in our church. They're beginning to be Beth Bailey. They're asking these tough questions. And are we going to provide space for them to have leadership in where we move next? Yeah, so I think that starts then with the leadership, not just in this room, but with the leadership of the way that we train church staff, clergy. Um, and I think Beth, wherever Beth is, I don't know where Beth is. She said it earlier about um, the words that you used were religious trauma, I believe. Um, and I think if we're being honest, so I have my own religious trauma, which is the whole reason I started talking into a microphone that I hoped nobody would listen to. Um, that's, yay, I was wrong. Um, but religious trauma is a real thing, and you touched on it earlier, Paul. So we have the racial injustices, the, um, the Christian nationalism. The, there's, it's hard to have a conversation about that with being overtly political, um, but I believe Jesus was also overtly political. Y'all don't have to agree with me. I'm happy to be the heretic on the stage. It's fine. Um, so how do we, what, are, what is the CBF currently doing or putting in place to ensure that the education of leadership, and I don't just mean paid leadership, I mean leadership in the church, that they are prepared to handle um, religious trauma or honestly trauma of any form because it's all commingled anymore. Like you turn on Facebook and all you see is Matt Chandler doing whatever and Mark Driscoll doing whatever. You see a lot of good things as well, but that's not the way that algorithms work and that's not the way that my children's brains work. Um, so what is happening there? And I apologize for the open-endedness of that question. Um, so I think for us, it's um, making sure that they hear a diversity of voices and also to say clearly that um, you know, those, those really conservative voices don't own Christianity. That's not the only voice. There is another community out here, and here's what we believe. You know, for a long time with CBF, it was, we're not Southern Baptist. And that was great for a couple of years, but again, the why has changed. Now it's about us living into our core values and creating that community that people can come and belong. So in addition to that, I would, I'll hold up for the last about five years, my colleague Jay Keevy's in the room. Uh, he's been involved in a sexual misconduct task force that CBF created almost a half decade ago to start producing resources that could be used by congregations and their leaders uh, to create spaces safe from uh, sexual abuse and trauma. And that work started before um, this was the national story. That work started from a place of conviction. It started in a partnership between Baptist Women in Ministry, uh, my colleague Meredith Stone's in the room, um, and CBF. Uh, Jay was a member of the committee. Uh, then he had a life transition and became the chair of it. But there are resources he will speak, I think, more about today in a breakout session. He can speak to you over lunch about resources you can use in your congregation to protect from the further infliction of that kind of trauma. But you're right, Seth, there is religious trauma everywhere. And I think um, we want to be honest first in searching our own hearts and our own minds to, to make sure that our own lives, um, our own ministries are not perpetuating that kind of trauma and are making space for that kind of trauma to be named, healed, recognized, because all too often um, religious institutions have inflicted trauma. And so uh, making space for that kind of conversation is really important. Um, I think also really essential is that we continue to think about new and innovative ways uh, to form congregational leaders mm. um, in settings that can be sensitive to the trauma that people experience on their way toward discovering a call to ministry. 
Uh, I'm really excited about uh, the new partnerships here in Virginia with Union Presbyterian Seminary and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, because I think both of those schools br bring really valuable resources uh, to congregations. A great challenge for CBF that we have to continue to reimagine is how do we truly be a Baptist community that gathers lay people as well as clergy? Um, so CBF's uh, Congregational Ministries team includes Chris Aho, who is director of our Thriving Congregations Initiative. Uh, the Lilly Endowment gave us a million dollars to launch that, launch that program. And that program is a series of leadership experiences that brings clergy and lay leaders from the congregation together. Uh, this will be different from almost any other Lilly-funded initiative that CBF has run up until now, where the focus has been solely on clergy. Now it'll be clergy and laity together so that the lessons, the habits, the learnings reach beyond um, just the ministers, but to, to lay leaders. Because that's the other thing that's changed dramatically. All of our ways of forming, training, encouraging lay leaders um, in the old Baptist world don't exist in the same way anymore. One last thing I'll mention. Uh, you're going to have to make all kinds of tough decisions about where you go for your workshops this afternoon. But one among many good decisions you could make is you could go to Meredith's. And one of the reasons that would be a really good decision you could make is because um, we moderate progressive Baptists have a really unfortunate track record of saying one thing when it comes to uh, encouraging the gifts and leadership graces of women, but our actions have not always kept up. And that induces its own kind of trauma. I mean, it's one thing to say women can't preach and not let women preach. It's another thing to say women can, but it's just not time yet. Mm. And, um, and it's also one thing to say we've called women pastors, so our church must be fully inclusive of women in every way. In my job, I get to listen to the testimonies of all kinds of experience and trauma, and I want to suggest that neither of those things are living into our founding vision. And uh, Baptist Women in Ministry is doing really important right, work right now, helping search committees and lay leaders uh, across the spectrum, in congregations and in denominations, think about how we set a more excellent course toward fully affirming and including the leadership gifts of women. That's a space where we need to make sure our words and our deeds are consistent. So I think I've talked longer than I was allowed. No, you're allowed. Um, <laughs> no, you're allowed. So I want to take that question one step further because I found myself thinking, okay, so um, I fully agree. We should be 100% um, inclusive of women. Matter of fact, if you know my wife, um, you will not find a better preacher than my wife who is a pediatric cancer nurse because she is doing work that I am afraid to do. Yep. Um, I don't know, yeah, we're just gonna let that hang for a minute. Um, but I am not prepared, and I feel like often in my upbringing, and, and so many of the congregations that are represented here as well, I don't know that I am prepared to live in a church that is 100% inclusive. I say that I am, um, but my views, things, uh, my views on things are pretty fluid when emotionality comes into it and when it impacts my children. And so I'm curious either of your thoughts on what we are doing to prepare the leaders of our church to actually begin to have a conversation to get our bodies accustomed to that. 
so that we're not just constantly burning through ministers um, and burning through members and burning through resources and a waste of time and emotional energy that, again, piles on to religious trauma. Uh, because I know I, I don't know what I would say if I wanted to lean into that and talk to my two daughters um, who were not as distracting as the twins, 100% not as. Mine's the one that sings off key in the very first pew. I don't know if you heard someone singing off key. That was mine. Um, yeah, so how, what is your perspective on how we are training leadership? Again, I want to hone into that because I think that that is what matters to then lean into the congregations to begin to build that because it's too much to have the pastor lead that uh, because then the pastor's not allowed to screw up and make mistakes. The pastor's not allowed to have a mental breakdown. The pastor's not allowed to ask for help, which is not acceptable um, and it's not realistic and it will kill the church, and that's my opinion, so nobody has to believe me or agree with me, but that's my opinion. And again, I have the microphone, so that's, that's the one that matters for the moment. So I'm, I'm curious your thoughts there. Like, what are we doing to actually train and condition the way that we lead our bodies, not preach to our bodies, but the way that we lead them to begin to be prepared to take a message of, you know, here's what we're doing for the next 30 years? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? You know, I think that we have uh, this identity of inclusion, but have we set up our churches well enough to have success when inclusion comes? You know, I think back to uh, my story. I grew up in a church where, you know, women weren't even allowed to speak in Sunday school classes where men were present. Um, and through, uh, through God's gift, I had gone way away from that. And then I would come to seminary, and in my mind, I know that everyone is called. I know that, right? It's in, it's my, it's in my mind. Um, and then I get called to a church that has a, a woman as a pastor. And I'm so excited. And we sit down and we interview and we go to lunch together. Um, and after about an hour, um, she looked at me and she said, Mark, I'm not sure you're ready for me. Um, and she said, I'm not sure the church is ready for me yet. And she'd been there two years. She said, to create a space that was going to be safe for her and for her to live into her full gifts, she was going to have to call out uncomfortable truths that she wasn't sure that the congregation was ready for. And so I learned pretty quickly um, that there aren't many resources, at least at that time, there weren't enough resources when it comes to training laity um, to have those conversations. Because people believe, we called a women pastor, right? We're fully, we're ready for this. And they find out they're not. And we've seen that story play over and over and over again uh, with women and with people of color. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to shift gears into a different line of sight. So um, I don't know how to repair that relationship or the one that you're talking about without some form of ecumenical, I don't know how to say 10 cent words. I'm going to stick to the nickel words. You know the word I'm trying to say. Ecumenical. Yeah, that's it. Um, perfect. So what is the CBF doing to partner with um, people that just have a little bit different dogma than we do, but hopefully are aligning with the way that our praxis lines up with what we're actually doing with our time and with our money and with our resources? How are we at, at a level beyond the city that we sit in? How are we partnering with other faith bodies to actually, again, be a church, not a building? So I'll give several really specific examples, but I, I want to begin by saying uh, it's not by accident we named ourselves cooperative. Even though some people thought that was, a, um, a, uh, was not synonymous with Baptist. 
Um, and so one place you can look to see evidence of ecumenism in CBF life is um, about half our theological partner schools now are Baptist Houses of Studies embedded in uh, seminaries or universities that have a different denominational affiliation. I think I'm in a fairly safe space. I am a graduate of Duke Divinity School. That does not mean that I pull for the Duke Blue Devils. I'm a Wake Forest Demon Deacon. Just <laughs> gotta be really honest, which means nobody's scared of me ever. But um, the beautiful thing about being a, go, going to divinity school at Duke in the early 90s is, is I, just, I met Baptists who were not white, whose life story did not begin with a really bad thing happened in 1979. And like, there are worse things than what happened in 1979, if you want to talk about trauma. Um, I also sat in class with Christians of every imaginable denomination from all over the world. That was humbling. It was expansive. Which when I started pastoring, I could go uh, out for meals with the Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopal, Roman Catholic clergy in town and not be absolutely lost. And in a lot of communities, the CBF churches can have better relationships with uh, folks of other denominations than they are with some other Baptists. I see some heads nodding. And oftentimes that means CBF congregations are hubs of ecumenical activity. A lot of places I go, it's a CBF partner congregation called something's in our DNA. I see a lot of heads nod, which means I'm not sleeping yet. Like, we are convening the ecumenical collaboration in town. And part of that's because of a lot of where uh, some of us went to school. Uh, somewhere else you see this, other than theological education, is in global missions. So, um, our colleague Jessica Hearns at the back of the room. Um, one of their most significant partners in Danville is Lutheran. Uh, our colleagues Diane and Shane McNary, who serve in Slovakia, when they first went there to minister among Roma people, the Baptists in Slovakia would have nothing to do with Roma people, but the Lutherans would. Hmm. Um, we now say in CBF Global Missions, we, we are called to cultivate beloved community, bear witness to Jesus, and seek transformational development in context of global poverty and global migration in partnership with the global church. It turns out the dude was wrong. Baptists in the South are not God's last and only hope. The gospel is better than that. Don't let anybody sell you that bill of goods. Have you not seen Easter? So... Um, we see that ever since Easter Sunday, the risen Jesus has been ahead of us going all kinds of places, and we're just breathless trying to keep up. And oftentimes, God is at work in communities in rural America, in Central Europe, in Uganda, in Asia, of Christians of all kinds of uh, denominational identification. And we want to come alongside and be partners with them in the work Jesus is doing among them and learn. That's been part of CBF's mission commitment increasingly from the very beginning. So I see ecumenism in the lives of CBF congregations. I see ecumenism in the life of CBF Global Missions. Um, I see a Baptist ecumenism important in CBF. Um, because of our involvement in Baptist World Alliance and other places, we are cultivating relations with Baptists who are not Southern and who are not white who can help us have a more expansive vision of what it means to be Baptist. Mm -hmm. And so, like many other things, I do not believe we have fully arrived. Mm -hmm. 
But I think the great news is the Holy Spirit is giving us a whole community of Christ followers along whom we can serve and with whom we can learn and discover the capacity to be more faithful. And so I think those are places I see ecumenism and I see us living into cooperative. Yeah. Yeah, Mark, different question for you. So we're entering in from what I read in the program, um, year two of Imagine. And so thinking back, um, we're obviously all in the room, a small amount of us in mass, like there's a lot of things that are different for the church today than there were three years ago, two years ago, honestly, Sunday. Um, and I've seen the impact even here. I mean, we had two services, now we're in one. And I'll be honest, um, Kristen, wherever you are, my wife's gonna say she doesn't like it, but I really enjoy the organ and Frank and the choir. And so I don't know what the next thing looks like, but we, I, I like us all together. But I'm curious, so when you think back on the last year, and so I, I have to think that you've given this thought, um, what did you imagine that was not successful that we tried? And then what have we learned from that uh, for the state of Virginia so that we can do new things? Because I think Baptists are really good at continuing to do the same thing and we'll give it a new name and we'll call it a new thing. But it's the same stupid thing. Um, see, they agree. Uh, so <laughs> what would you say to that? Like, what have we imagined? What do we learn from that? And, and honestly, what if we failed that? Because there's a lot of wisdom in failure. So I'm going to probably not mention a program here, but more a mindset, right? So I would say at the beginning of last year, um, when I would talk to clergy, um, they would talk out of a, uh, many, many would talk out of a sense of scarcity. It's not enough people. There's not enough money. There's not enough uh, people who don't say crazy things on Facebook. Yeah, there's just not, there's not enough of anything, right? And when you get scarce, when you're in that scarcity mode, um, it's hard to dream. It's hard to dream about what's next, right? And uh, a place where I think that I have failed um, in this position is not helping people get to the place that they can dream. But... I have seen a shift in the last couple of months in the mindset of ministers. Um, I've seen a shift from scarcity to, you know what, this is where we are now, you know, and we're going to see this as abundance. Um, abundant community is something we use in our church, and I think it's a great model to talk about what's coming next for the church, and it's ecumenical, right? Uh, what does this abundant community look like? Um, things aren't going back the way they are, but there's still good things happening. God's still moving among us, so we've gone from that scarcity model we're moving into more of a model of abundance, and there's dreaming happening again. And so when I think about Imagine, this is the great time to talk about Imagine because people are using their imaginations to think about what's next for their congregations. Yeah, yeah. So I want to ask one question, and then I'll let anyone else, I'm going to give you three or four minutes or however long they talk, to think about if you have a question. Um, and so I'm, I'm asking it from a a perspective of, of selfishness, because it's something that concerns me. So my children come home every day. Uh, they're told what they're told by um, WRE, which is their friends that went to WRE, which is weekday religious education for people that don't know. And I don't allow them to go to that because I'm not happy with the way that that is executed at the level that I live at, though I'm sure it is executed at better levels in different counties or cities. But the, the questions that they come home with recently, uh, and this stems from the seven-year-old up to the 13-year-old, are overtly political because they keep getting fed the lie that you have to agree with a certain political side to see people as the image of God. And I don't say that tongue in cheek, like that's literally what they are implying to me. Uh, and so it's hard to unwind that. 
And so the advertisements are going to keep coming every two years. Um, there seems to be tribes inside of tribes, inside of tribes, inside of churches, inside of denominations, inside of Democrats, inside of Republicans and Greens and whatever party it is. How do we shepherd wisdom on a Sunday and a Monday and a Wednesday and a random Friday when the church offices are closed? Like, how do we shepherd wisdom? Because it's not healthy, um, it's not safe, and it is certainly not helping anything, um, both for our churches, but I think also for our families. Uh, and, and I don't know that anyone is equipped to handle that. And so how is the CBF or the church overall, in your perspective, helping to push forward a path of wisdom? You're looking at me, so I'll, um, <laughs> I'll give this a shot. And Easy questions. Probably I'm being looked at because it'll give you all more time to think of your questions um, in case you want to take Seth up on his offer. Um, there is no doubt that the notion that Caesar is Lord is alive and well. problem is we were given a better confession than that. Jesus Lord. There is no doubt that their voices and algorithms, to use a word that was used already, all around us trying to sell us a bill of goods that in order to be a follower of Jesus we have to vote a certain way. As though a political party or a politician somehow has the power to make right the broken world. Um, one of the reasons CBF released the congregational resource that has just come out a couple weeks ago, Seeing Through the Eyes of Jesus, is we thought it was time to remind us all of the profession of faith that got us into the church. Jesus is Lord. And so I think when that, so when I'm not traveling all over the world, I sometimes take my kids home from school and to school. And I also hear the same kind of questions that you hear and the same kind of reflections that you hear. So this is intentionally personal. This is not just denominational. Um, I want to say to the folks in the room, you may not be aware of this. Oh, this question came up in this very room Sunday morning. Like CBF churches experience this struggle in ways that are not as typical as you think. When I took the job coordinator of CBF, a person who would know said to me, I don't think you CBF folks understand how unusual your congregations are because in a world where in most denominations, most congregations are either completely red or completely blue, most of your congregations are somewhere in between. And in a world that's being engineered to be red or blue, you might be some of the last places in any community people who don't vote the same way, think the same way, pray the same way, sit close to each other ever. So then the big question becomes, how do you navigate that context without just watering everything down to the path of least resistance? Like, how do you stand in that kind of space and speak with courage and not just go along to get along? Struggles that don't exist in other congregations exist in many of ours. So I think it falls on us in CBF to continue to provide resources that reframe the conversations in light of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? 
it falls on us to train our staffs, to work with our partners, um, to work with states and regions on how do we come alongside congregations whenever you have a difficult conversation because in the world we live in, the voices around us, the social media algorithms are going to overtake that conversation if we're not really intentional and really careful. And I think it falls on folks who have jobs like Mark's and mine um, to continue to send the message loud and clear. We're not interested in working for the politicians. Most congregations I know are doing a whole lot more than any legislative body I know right now. I don't know why I'd want the demotion of going to work for the politicians. I think congregations are much better equipped to offer a witness to Jesus' ability to, to bring people into a unity more powerful than algorithms and much more capable of seeking transformation in this world than anything I see. So I live in Georgia, so I'll say out of Washington or Atlanta. Um, I'll close my rambling responses with a, a um, illustration some of you have heard me reference. More than a decade ago, I read Emmanuel Katongale's book, Mirror to the Church. It was his reflections on the lessons of the Western church from the genocide in Rwanda. And he said that what the church in America needs to learn from the genocide in Rwanda is that the genocide in Rwanda broke out because the blood of tribalism ran deeper than the waters of baptism. We have to get to a place where the waters of baptism are more formative and more powerful than the blood of tribalism. You want to clean that up, Mark? Oh, sure. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I got this one in the bag. So a couple of years ago, um, a couple of people in this room were with me. We went to Haiti, and we led a VBS over um, New Year's Eve for Jenny Jenkins um, at her compound out there in Haiti. And on the way home, um, we were a little bit early to the airport, and the, and the driver said, hey, can I take you all to a special place to me? We're like, sure, we're early. Let's go ahead and go. And so we pull up to this place, and it was about the size of a football field, and it had a fence around it, and really the only nice, nice manicured grass we had seen the entire time we were in Haiti. And in the middle of it was a cross, and it was on this side of a mountain. It was beautiful, and so we, we were just sitting there kind of taking it all in, and finally we asked the driver, okay, tell us about this place. And he said, well, when the, hur when the earthquake came a couple of years ago, all the unidentified bodies were buried here, and this is a mass grave. And so we're taking this all in, right? What we didn't notice is the little village up on the mountain, a couple of kids had started to come down, to wander down to uh, talk to us, right? And uh, one of the kids, you know, prototypical picture, right? You can see his ribs. You could tell he was hungry. Um, he said, do you have any food? Uh, and we were packed up for the airport. All of our supplies were gone. All we had was a bag of Doritos not the healthiest snack to give to anybody. But we gave this kid uh, this bag of Doritos, and our driver says, hey, we got to go. And we're like, what are you talking about? Here comes like 30 kids down from the mountain. So we hop in, and we start to leave, and I, and I look back, and this kid is handing Doritos mm. to every other kid. And this vision haunted me for years. And I'd say it still haunts me to this day. And at first... My takeaway, my reflection from this is, man, we got to feed people. 
And so me and my wife, we always are sponsor, you know, trying to, to give food to other people and always working in food pantries, just trying to feed people. And then we notice, man, these, the same people are coming week after week to these food pantries. If you've worked in one, you know this. There's systems in place that are holding people down. And so I get really passionate about this, right? My name is Mark. I like to run through brick walls, and I'm talking to everybody about how do we break down these systems that are keeping the people down. And you hear from people that you love, there are no such systems in place. That doesn't exist. These are lazy people. And you're like, what are you talking about? To love your neighbor means to tell the truth. And to love one neighbor means to tell another neighbor that they're wrong. So for us to talk politically is to stand up for what we value, to stand up for the neighbors who are marginalized. That, that child is my image of Jesus. Generous, living with the marginalized and teaching me how to be a better person. Hmm. Hmm. So you've had 10 minutes. Does anyone have a question? We've got time for maybe one or two. This is when the room gets silent. Room full of preachers and ministers and the room gets silent. <laughs> yeah. So you've got one in the back? I will come to you, sir. Hopefully this thing will work the whole way. Appreciate it. So as we talk about CBF uh, Global, but more specifically CBF Virginia, I think we can all look around this room and tell that it is a very white space. And I think that while we may mean well, the reality is along the 30 years, we have perpetuated what this looks like. Uh, I think that we can also look around and say there's a generational gap too. And there's a lot of older white people here today, more specifically men. As we look to the future, Paul or Mark, what does, what does it look like to make this space more diverse? Mm. To not just say that we want to be inclusive of women or be inclusive uh, of folks on the LGBTQIA uh, spectrum, but what does it look like to say, we think that people of color were uniquely created in the image of God, and bigger than that, we're gonna give them not only an opportunity to preach, but opportunity to pastor among us. And I think that it's one thing to, to have them on staff as like a missions pastor or, or give them the microphone for 20 minutes on a Sunday, but it's another thing to say, come and be in community with us. So as we look forward to the future, how do we plan to, uh, to tackle that? That's a great question. You know, and Paul talked about how um, the structures that are in place that are keeping um, a non-sexist organization to have, continue to have sexist results. Now, we haven't, we haven't destroyed that structure yet, and we're trying to bring this to the next level. I think leadership matters. I think who we put at the podium matters. I think the mental images of people that we show in leadership matters. Um, partnerships matter. Um, but we have a long way to go, as you can tell, um, in making this uh, from an aspiring goal to something that we have actually lived to in a really concrete way. So 
yes, and what I'll say beyond what Mark said is over the last four or five years, uh, CBF Global has begun to be more intentional about this. Um, for five years now, our colleague Ruben Ortiz has, is Latino field coordinator for CBF Global. And uh, his relationship building, ministry of invitation and partnership has begun to bring more um, Latino congregations and individuals into CBF life. La Familia celebrates its fifth anniversary this coming General Assembly. And one of the tremendous outcomes of that effort is, and I'll share this both as a celebration and as a prayer request, we now have a covenant of collaboration with an American Baptist Association of Congregations in Puerto Rico. And if you're not praying for uh, our Baptist friends in Puerto Rico in the wake of the hurricane, Fiona, that made landfall over the weekend, please do. Don't pray at a distance. Pray as people in community with Baptists in Puerto Rico. This is the fifth anniversary of the trauma of Maria. Uh, we talk about the trauma of the pandemic. In Puerto Rico, they had Maria, they had an earthquake, then they had the pandemic. And their congregations are a beautiful testimony to powerful resilience. Um, what we're finding in the growth of La Familia is not just that CBF is learning how to invite Spanish-speaking uh, folks into our community, but that they have much to teach us. Pan-African Koinonia is younger than La Familia, <laughs> but it's CBF, uh, CBF's initiative to increase the number of black congregations and individuals in CBF. Um, and this week, its first ever full-time coordinator begins her work. And there'll be an announcement about that. My colleague Casey Jones has been leading that while also trying to lead all of CBS outreach and growth initiatives. Uh, so we have expanded our staff in outreach and growth. Uh, and one of them is a field coordinator for Pan-African Koinonia. Um, she's gonna be based out of North Carolina, so she'll be really close to Virginia. And both uh, Ruben and our new coordinator uh, for Pan-African Koinonia want to work in close partnership with our states and regions. When it comes to making CBF more diverse, I think two other things need to be said. Yes, leadership matters. Uh, we're also learning that it is a very different thing to prepare predominantly or historically white congregations to receive black or brown leadership than it is to welcome predominantly black or brown congregations into CBF. So those are both parts of the growth strategy, but they're not the same thing. Um, the, the, the number of congregations in CBF that have had the experience as predominantly white of calling uh, black or brown leadership, those are wonderful teachers for other congregations that might be called to do the same thing. And it is not a lazy river ride, especially since 2020. Go back to our earlier, earlier conversation about partisanship. But we're also feeling a strong commitment to partner with historically black denominations right now to strengthen those partnerships um, because they have something to teach us. So we want for CBF to become more diverse. We want to be better partners with uh, other denominational bodies that bring different racial and ethnic experiences. 
And for us, it's not either or, it's both and. And here's the last thing I'm going to say about this, unless you want to talk more over lunch. This is not about being culturally consistent. This is about the gospel. So we're Baptists, y'all, and it's almost time for lunch, and we should read the Bible for a minute. And in the second chapter of Acts, the church of Jesus Christ was born among people who were in Jerusalem, who spoke many languages and were many different racial and ethnic identities. So when someone says this conversation about inclusion or justice on matters of race and ethnicity is about keeping up with cultural mores, no, this is about the gospel. And I think in this partisan world, let's not demote the conversation. Let's claim the biblical and theological and moral high ground that Jesus said, you know, that Jesus modeled and that Paul, for all of his uh, trouble he sometimes causes us, uh, said to us in Galatians, like, in Christ Jesus, this is not a, about uh, slave or free, male and female. We're all one. And oneness doesn't mean everybody ends up acting like they look like me. Diversity is not an accident. It's the beautiful intention of God. And when a community is Racially, racially and ethnically diverse and inclusive, it embodies the imago Dei in a way that was not possible before. So don't ever leave here and say, we're just trying to keep up with cultural trends. We're trying to chart the trend. That's what I got. So I'm aware that I am what is keeping you from eating lunch. And so in the interest of that, um, we won't ask any more questions yet, but I do have one more question because it has become, so it's something I started three years ago on the show, and so if you don't feel like listening to any of, you don't like the way I phrase questions or the questions that I ask, I would, I would encourage you to go to wherever you listen to podcasts and listen to the last episode of at least the last two or three years. It is just the summation of this answer compiled on top of itself over and over with literally about 17 seconds of input from me, which is honestly, I love that. That's my favorite episode. I don't have to talk. It's amazing. Um, and so that question is this, and, and I would challenge each of you to kind of think through an answer because it, it appears easy, but it's not. Um, and so in no particular order, when you try to wrap words around whatever the heck God is, what is that? I'm going to go back to my Haiti story. That child is what I think God is. God teaches us to be generous. God lives among the marginalized and God uh, challenges us to be better people. That's who God is for me. God is relentless, remarkable, resurrecting, resilient love. And therefore, God is unpredictably adventurous. And that's the God who says to us, See, I make everything new. And that's the God who's working on the stage of this chaotic time to call us to a more beautiful and more relentlessly loving expression of church. So let's imagine that. Yeah, and I don't usually answer this question, but I kind of feel led to, mostly because my kids called me on my, my junk for not ever answering the question, and so I had to give it a lot of thought. But here is how I explain what God is to my seven-year-old, 
And so um, we will agree that we measure time in how fast light gets from here to there. Like that's how we all as humans experience time. And so whatever God is, it is not bound to the pages of the app in your Bible or the pages of whatever the Bible is or even those 66 books of the Bible. It's not bound to the mountains or to me or to you. It is whatever my experience of love is in community with you at, a, at something that exists faster than an expanding universe. It is expanding faster than the speed of light, which is how I understand my concept of time. And that makes absolutely no sense at all. And that something about that is wondrous and terrifying and amazing. And so whatever that is, that is what God is for me. So with that, I think I'm done. I think we're done. So yeah, thanks you both for being up here and participating. Appreciate the question back there in the back. And um, yeah. Thank you to Seth and Mark and Paul. Um, I was in and out, but what I heard was gold, and I can't wait to listen to it in its fullness. Um, I do have a few instructions for lunch for us this morning before we bless the meal. Uh, if you all um, will exit out these doors on this side, the kitchen uh, is just on the other side of the doors, and folks will be serving you, and then you can come in. Drinks are in the back, and we will have volunteers serving those for you as well. Um, the options for lunch today, a lunch is provided by a local company called Takeout 250. Um, we love supporting local businesses and hope that you will too whenever you host events at your church. Um, so we have two meat entree options. You get a choice of one or the other. The first is a lemon butter caper chicken, and the second is roast beef. Uh, the vegetarian entree is a veggie primavera, but even if you're not vegetarian, there's plenty of servings of that, so please help yourself. And then there's mashed potatoes and a veggie blend um, to eat. So hopefully uh, there's something for folks who are vegetarian or not, um, and if you have any questions, just feel free to let us know. Uh, we have a whole hour for lunch. Um, we will kick off the business session at 1 o'clock, um, so enjoy fellowship. I know that there has been a lot said uh, in this last hour, so share with people around the table um, and feel free to just talk about it. There's also vendors and sponsors who are set up around the room, um, so feel free to peruse their tables as well and just get to know those folks. With that being said, let's offer a prayer for our lunch today. God, we thank you for the time that we have spent together already this morning in worship and reflection and prayer and celebration and in asking hard questions. God, we thank you for the ways that you are helping us imagine things today. We pray that this meal will provide nourishment to us, but also will provide an opportunity to gather around the table and to share in fellowship with each other. We pray that this time will be fulfilling both in the food that we are eating and in the conversations that we have. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.